has forgiven us, that we are able to extend that forgiveness to those who sin against us. So I'd like to begin uh, <clears throat> by asking you to think about the worst thing you've ever done. Uh, what, what would you guess is the worst sin you've ever committed? It might be something that's had the longest lasting negative effects on you or has caused the, the greatest pain to others. Uh, it could be something even that, that doesn't seem all that serious in itself, but you've done it over and over and over again, and it has just worn your soul raw through repetition. Um, it might not even be the worst thing in God's eyes, but it's the thing that you feel the most pain over. Uh, it could be something that you failed to do, and that omission has had horrible consequences for yourself or for others. What is it you think has grieved God the most? Would you just close your eyes and, and think about that for about 10 seconds? Uh, I'll not ask you to share this with anyone, but I think it'll help us to hear what God has to say to us about forgiveness if we can, can understand clearly what it is we have to be forgiven for. Well, I think there are two uh, common mistakes that we make when, when we come to think about God's forgiveness. One is to assume that, that there's no grace with God. Some people have this mental image of God that pictures him as very stern and harsh and judgmental, and, uh, and they just have a hard time accepting his forgiveness. They know in their heads that God forgives, they read the words, they hear it, they probably even memorized 1 John 1, 9, but it doesn't penetrate to the place where they live emotionally, spiritually. And, and you probably know some of these folks, and, and they just have horrible self-images, and they are riddled with guilt all the time, and, and it's just painful to see them. The other side, the other mistake on the other side, is to think that God has no standards. And so people on this side read the Bible. They understand that He is uh, God is kind and, and merciful. They figure that God is so tolerant and so indulgent that no sinner has anything to fear. <clears throat> These people take God's forgiveness too lightly. They don't beg for it. They assume it. They, uh, they sort of echo the stance of the French philosopher who said, God has to forgive. It's his job. Okay? They very seldom think of confessing their sins because sin just isn't an issue for them. Uh, their sin, that which, that which put the Son of God to death, means little or nothing to them. Both of these are serious errors. John Newton had it right when he wrote in his famous song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and then fear, grace my fears relieved." Unless God in his grace enables us to see the, the seriousness of our sin, the, the eternal danger that we're in, the wrongness of what we do, then we will forever treat his forgiveness as our rightful due, and we'll hardly even pause to thank him for it. Some of us never get the, past the stage of a small child in this regard. When, when our children are very little, we rightly teach them that, that, that what they need to do when they sin is to tell God they're sorry and ask him to forgive them. And, and they do that. They do it because we tell them to do it. It's not because they feel terrible contrition and remorse. They just do it because we say, this is what you must do to be forgiven. And so they do that. But when we grow up and we become better able to recognize the seriousness of our sin and the consequences of our sin for Jesus Christ and the deceitfulness of our own heart, then it seems to me a little more emotional and mental work is required of us. 
we need to reflect on our sin. We need to see how bad it is. We need to see why this act crucified the Son of God. We need to see our sin as God sees it. And then turn away from it in revulsion and fear. And not just toss off a casual, God forgive me for anything I might have done wrong today. See the difference? Are we stuck as children? Or are we going to deal with our sin as adults? But then, when God's grace has allowed us to appreciate the seriousness of our sin, then it's time for his grace to relieve us of that appropriate fear. We need to embrace his forgiveness, not spurn it, not discount it, not reject it. We need to open ourselves up to him, readily, hungrily, greedily grab the forgiveness that he offers us in Christ. If we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bible says we are his children, adopted into his family, we are his very own sons and daughters. What happens to that relationship with our Heavenly Father when we sin? Well, pretty much the same thing that happens in our family when the kids break the family rules. Uh, if your teen uh, stays out past the curfew or comes home drunk or speaks disrespectfully to his mother, that creates an instant sense of distance, of separation between us. The relationship is the same as before. They're still your kid, like it or not. But the fellowship is broken by their disobedience. And that's true with us and God as well. When we disobey, it destroys the fellowship that we had with him. He's in the light. Our sin puts us over here out of the light. So we're no longer walking in fellowship with him. But we're still his children. And we always will be. The question I ask myself about this is, why, why are we not more concerned to be forgiven? I could be wrong. Uh, if this doesn't apply to you, that's fine. But it, it seems to me that lots of us go many days in a row without ever thinking of our sin. It, it just doesn't seem to be an issue. And if our sin separates us from God, why doesn't that bother us more? That's the question I have in mind. I'm speaking to myself. If, if my sin separates me from God, why doesn't it bother me more? Could it be that I don't miss his fellowship? If I offend my spouse or if you offend your best friend, we instantly sense the distance and the coolness in the relationship, and that bothers us. We hate it. We hate it so much we're willing to do anything, even apologize, to make that distance go away until we can be reconciled. So why aren't we doing that with God? Why don't we feel that? Is it possible that we're not close enough to him in the first place to even sense the distance that our sin creates? See, if, if God is here and we through our sin have wandered farther and farther away, so we're already walking a mile away from him, then another hundred yards isn't going to make much difference. If that's your situation, if it doesn't seem to matter, if you don't miss the fellowship that you had with God that's caused by your sin, I just want to urge you to do something about this. I mean, make it a matter of serious prayer. There's something fundamentally wrong with our relationship if we don't even miss the intimacy with him that our sin destroys. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'd like you to turn to that if you would. It's a real short verse, but it gets right to the heart of... Uh, of this business of God's forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 
<clears throat> God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In a basketball game, we're watching, <clears throat> watching a lot of basketball these days, uh, there's, uh, you know, a player gets tired or he gets close to uh, fouling out and the coach will send in a sub. When the pitcher uh, starts throwing a lot of balls or giving up hits, it's time to go to the bullpen, get a relief pitcher in there for him. There's a job to be done, and if the person doing it can't do it, then you send in a substitute. Send in somebody who can do it, because the job has to be done. Well, you and I are called to live holy lives, called to walk in the light as God is in the light. But from very on, early on in the game of each of our lives, it becomes apparent that we can't do the job. Uh, we start out as little kids, insisting, do it self. <laughs> and then uh, as teenagers, we just do it self, <laughs> uh, go our own way pretty much. And then as adults, uh, we continue to find that, that we fall short. We, are, we don't care for widows and orphans, and we rob God of, God of his ties. And our attitudes are unbelievably self-centered, and our love is so short and puny, short-lived and puny, our failure to measure up to God's standards uh, will certainly cause us to lose this game. Uh, we're going to foul out. We'll be defeated and we'll be cut off forever from the presence of God. But God in his love for us was unwilling to let us perish. He sent in a substitute for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus Christ is the perfect substitute. He had no sin. That was the conclusion of his friends and his enemies alike. He lived a perfect life, which is a good deal better than batting a thousand or shooting 100% from the free throw line. Jesus Christ offered his life for ours. Now, had he only been a man who lived a sinless life, he could have offered his life in exchange for one other sinner. But because he was God in the flesh, his life was worth that of everyone who ever lived and ever will, ever will live. So he could be the substitute for the whole human race. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Jesus didn't become a sinner, but he took on himself the guilt of our sin and was punished for it. He died the death we deserve. He bore the punishment we should have had for our sin, namely separation from God, which is why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to how Isaiah described this substitution 700 years before Christ. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ is our substitute. Which points us to the cost of being forgiven by God. No one ever forgives someone else without bearing in himself the penalty for the other person's sin. This is most easily seen if you think in terms of financial debt. If you owe me $20 and you come to me and say, you know, Jim, I, I just don't have it and I can't see that I'm ever going to have it. I, I just can't pay this debt. And I say to you, that's fine, forget it. I, I release you, I forgive you of the debt. Well, that's just cost me 20 bucks. The 20 bucks you owed me, now I have to pay. It cost me that, right? 
to forgive someone is to pay their debt. So when we go to God and we say, Lord, forgive us, what we're really saying is, look, God, we know we owe you this horrendous debt, and we can't pay it. So we're asking you to pay it instead. And he did. That's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. In the movie, The Last Emperor, there is a young boy who has been appointed as the last emperor of China. And uh, he lives a life of unbelievable luxury. He has a thousand servants at his command. And his brother asks him one day, what happens when you do wrong? And he says, when I do wrong, someone else is punished. And to demonstrate this amazing situation, he goes over and knocks over a vase. And one of the servants is beaten. God completely reversed that. When the king's subjects did wrong, the king himself was beaten and crucified. Praise God. He who had no sin became sin for us and was punished for it. So the king is punished for our sin. We can now be forgiven. The Bible uses all sorts of words to describe this forgiveness. And I want to cover some of them this morning because the, the composite picture they paint of God's forgiveness is really beautiful. Isaiah 43. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I know a man in our church who spilled an entire gallon of latex paint on his carpeted stairs. <laughs> the paint, of course, is never the same color as the carpet. <laughs> he assumed the carpet was ruined, but he kept pouring gallons of water on it and mopping it up, blotting it up with towels, and eventually he got all of the paint out of that carpet. That's what God has done with our sin. Macbeth was so guilt-ridden over the murder he had committed that he kept washing his hands over and over again, trying to get the stain of the blood off, crying, out, out, damn spot! And he just couldn't get rid of the guilt. Well, of course not. It took a lot of hard work. It took the death of God's own son, but God has gotten the stain of our guilt completely out so that he can say to us in Isaiah 118, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Some years ago, our kids, uh, Barbie and a couple of friends of our kids, were at Taco Bell for lunch. And uh, one of the friends was playing with one of those little hot sauce packets. You see where this is going, don't you? See? And uh, this little girl, I forget how old she was at the time, elementary age anyway, and, and uh, suddenly she says, oh, no. And Barbie looks over, and there right next to her is a, a woman dressed in a very classy, cream-colored business suit with red hot sauce splattered all over it. <laughs> Our sins stand out just that clearly to God. And they are just that offensive. But in his mercy and grace, he gets the stain of our sin out completely. So that we are dressed again in pure white robes, as white 
as new fallen snow. Jeremiah 31, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now a word is in order about this because I often hear people say God forgets our sins <clears throat> on the basis of this verse. They say that. I think a moment's reflection will show that this cannot be the case. Uh, God is omniscient. He knows everything. God can no more forget your sins than he can cease to be loving or just. It's in his nature to know everything, past, present, future. Okay? So what does this verse mean? <clears throat> well, it's anthropomorphic language. It's talking about God, describing God in terms that would suit human beings so that we can get some idea of what he's like. And it's a way of saying that he can treat us as though he had forgotten. When someone offends us, the only way we can go back to the relationship being exactly the way it was before that offense is if we forget the offense. I mean, we say, I forgive you, and then if I forget it, then the relationship can go back to the way it was exactly before. And we do it all the time with little minor offenses, right? Little things. You know, somebody comes to us, some, I've had people apologize to me for things I didn't even remember. And you have too, right? When it's more serious offenses, then it's much harder for us to forget. But what this is saying is that no matter how serious the sin, God, for, God lets it go. He can, he can treat us, he can relate to us as though he had completely forgotten our sin. He doesn't hold it against us. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. The word covered means to hide or to conceal something. We might think of a, uh, of a little child who spills some juice on the rug and carefully arranges his blankie over it so that mommy won't see. Eh? Only in this case, it's God himself who covers our sin, just as he provided the covering for Adam and Eve. The sin is still there, but he covers it over so that it won't affect our relationship in any way. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Well, how far is the east from the west? Well, we've arbitrarily assigned names to the eastern and western hemispheres. But if you're David, <laughs> writing in an era when you think the world is flat, then east and west are just opposite directions. He's simply saying he's removed our sin as far as possible from us. Micah 7, 19. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What kinds of things do you step on? What kinds of things do you tread underfoot? Well, there are things that don't matter to you, things you don't care about, things that are irrelevant, things that you just don't like. It's an expression of disdain or disregard, and that's the way God treats our sin when he's forgiven us. Those sins don't matter to him at all. He treads them underfoot. And the other image here is that he hurls our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Remember one time when I was a boy, uh, my grandfather had a little fishing boat, and we, he would take it out in the Chesapeake Bay, and I was uh, with him and some others one day. We were trolling for striped bass, and so the boat's just kind of slowly idling along, rocking gently in the swell of the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, my grandfather's at the helm, but the boat's going so slowly, and it doesn't really matter what direction you go as long as you don't run into anybody. So it doesn't take a lot of constant attention with both hands on the wheel. So he's kind of got one hand on the wheel, and with one hand he's got his rod out the, the door there by, by the, uh, 
uh, by the wheel, and uh, with the other hand, he's eating fried chicken. And uh, he got a bone in his mouth, and, and kind of absentmindedly, you know, he's got sort of three different things he's supposed to be doing here, and absentmindedly, he took, took the bone out of his mouth and spit his dentures overboard. <laughs> now, the Chesapeake Bay is nowhere near as deep as the sea, or even the Mediterranean Sea that, uh, that Micah knew about, but those teeth were gone. <laughs> they were gone <laughs> down in the depths of the deep, deep sea. <laughs> yes, sir. So are our sins when God has forgiven us. So Jesus takes our sin on himself and pays for it. And when he does, our forgiveness is complete. It's thorough. It's absolute. But it gets even better than this. It's not, if you're thinking accounting terms, we start with a debt. And it's not just that he pays our debt and brings us up to a zero balance. He goes beyond that and gives us then his righteousness. The last half of 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God puts our sin and guilt in Christ's account and puts his righteousness in our account. He gets our sin and punishment. We get his righteousness and reward. This is the great exchange of the gospel. Now, Jesus Christ did not become a sinner in this transaction, and neither do we become instantly righteous in our behavior. No one thinks that uh, the moment you put your faith in Christ, your, your act is altogether, and your behavior, your thoughts, your words, and everything are suddenly pure and holy. That's not the case. But we do have God's righteousness imputed to us, credited to our account. Back in Genesis 15, God made an, astonish, an astonishing promise to Abram. said that he and, and his wife Sarah, even though they had never had children and were now well past childbearing age, they were going to have a son. And through him, they would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abram believed God. He took God at his word, and God credited that faith to him as righteousness. That's what God does for us. When he looks at us in Christ, he sees not our sin, but Christ's righteousness. Praise God for his forgiveness. After David had been successfully crowned king of Israel and was reigning in Jerusalem, he was on the rooftop of his palace one evening when he looked down and saw a woman bathing. She was very beautiful. He sent to find out who she was. Her name is Bathsheba, wife of Uriah the Hittite, who was out fighting the battles with the army of Israel. David was filled with lust and had her sent over to the palace where he slept with her. A little later, she sent him word and said, I'm pregnant. Now David had a serious problem. But not to worry, he's the king. He's got resources. He sends a message to Joab, the commander. Send Uriah home. Sends him home, he speaks to him, he says, look, you've been doing a great job out there on the battlefield, why don't you go home and just spend the evening with your wife? But Uriah is a man of honor, and his fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield. He's not gonna sleep with his wife while his friends and comrades are suffering. So David sends him back with a message, a sealed message to his commander. And the message is to put Uriah in the part of the battle where the fighting is most intense 
and then have everyone else draw back. Joab, the obedient commander, does what his king tells him and sends the cryptic message to the king. Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David had thus, oh, and then David took Bathsheba into his palace as his wife. So he had thus broken the sixth commandment by committing murder, the seventh commandment by committing adultery, the eighth commandment by stealing another man's wife, and the tenth commandment by coveting Uriah's wife. And in response, God sent Nathan the prophet to David to tell him this story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and he grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It even slept in his arms. This little lamb was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep to prepare a meal for his traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for his friend. David burned with anger and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan looked at David and said, You are the man. That's what David had done to Uriah and worse. Following that dramatic encounter, David wrote a poem to express his sorrow and grief at what he had done and to ask for God's forgiveness. We know it as Psalm 51. It's on the back of your sermon outline. I'd like you to, to get that out. And, um, and before I read this, uh, I just want you to think again about your own sin. Perhaps that thing you identified earlier in the service, or perhaps God would bring something else to mind. But I don't want this just to be a, an exercise in liturgy. I, I really want this to be a time when we do business with God. And, and my sense is, I, I thought of having us read this in unison, but my sense is that when we do that, uh, we pay more attention to whether we're in sync with the rest of the people around us than really what the words are saying. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray it and just ask you to follow along and, and, and to make this your prayer. Would you do that? And then, Terry, if you'll come just when I'm done. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. 
Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. <laughs> 